Well, please turn back to Acts 25 and 26. We'll be looking at that uh, together now. And uh, as you're turning to it, uh, spare a thought for uh, the uh, Binium Gurnum, I think his name is, Gurmay, Binium Gurmay. You might have read about him last week. Poor chap. He was the first black African to win a tour, a phase of the Giro d'Italia, the Italian Tour de France, if you like. Cycling. Fantastic. He's won the first, the first time a black African has won a, 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 a leg of this incredibly gruelling cycle race. And sadly, when he was celebrating, he got hit in the eye by the champagne cork. And then the doctors said, you can't race in the next section. And you think, if only. Have you ever said that? If only. I mean, it's the sort of thing you do when you, when you hit your hand with a hammer. Or perhaps more seriously, we, we've all said things, haven't we? Or done things. And we look back and we say, if only. If only I hadn't done that. And if you haven't, if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, you're obviously a young person, don't worry, <laughs> you will soon understand what I'm talking about. Uh, regrets or, you know, that sort of, ah, oh, why? Why? And we get that in all sorts of other ways in life as well. Why has that happened? Why has that happened? If only this hadn't or had happened. It can happen in all kinds of ways. And the question I think that this passage addresses is, is there an answer to that? And I think the, question, the answer is yes. Look at the very end of chapter 26. We have King Agrippa and the governor Festus and all these powerful people saying, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. If only God had done this, or allowed that, or stopped this, surely all would now be different. If only Paul was free. If only the great apostle Paul. If only he was free to serve the churches. To preach to the nations. I mean, that's why the Lord set him free, wasn't it? To rescue him from the Jewish people and to, to go into the Gentiles. It says so in the verses there. Free to enjoy his Christian friendships. Free to train up other people, to bring people along in ministry. If only, if only. Ah, oh, but wait, 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 wait. Maybe there's more going on here than just that. Maybe God has a bigger plan. Maybe if we look more carefully, we will see that there are actually no if-onlys with God. There are no what-ifs. There's no plan B. There's no second best. And I hope that's going to be an encouragement for us all. Paul is exactly where the Lord wants him to be. Not free to do the things he's done before. And as we listen, we will discover, I think, that Paul is going to teach us by this passage that there are no what-ifs with us either. 
There are no if-onlys with you and I. We can learn amazing things about our plans, so-called, about the things that, that oppose us and, and distress us about our plans and God's plans and why only one of those is actually worth following. I hope it will cheer you and encourage you, especially if you've seen some of your cherished plans go astray. I think it will protect us from sad, discontented longing. And I hope it will perhaps empower us to actually step out tomorrow without the first clue what will happen tomorrow and still be confident in the Lord Jesus. That's our prayer and hope. So let's have a look briefly at this passage. I'm not going to look at everything. It's a, it's a long reading, but we're going to look at some of the thoughts. So the first thing to say is that power is fantasy. If you prefer pomp, there you go. That word appears in chapter 25 and verse 23. Not the uh, musical pomp and circumstance, but... Um, where is it? 2523. Uh, just, oh yeah, over the page. The next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. Now, we need to know a little bit about all this gang of people. Agrippa, he was the latest in a notorious family. If ever a family deserved to be called the kind of Jerusalem mob, this was them. So his great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who killed the baby boys in Bethlehem in an attempt to destroy the coming Messiah. So that's great-grandpa. His great-uncle was Herod Antipas, who murdered John the Baptist and who mocked Christ at his crucifixion and trial. His father was Herod Agrippa I, who murdered James, the apostle. We read about that earlier in the book of Acts. Who then tried to kill the apostle Peter and later died of intestinal worms. Just reminding us that God is in control. <laughs> but what a family! And just in case you think, well, maybe he's the white sheep of the family, if you excuse that phrase. Agrippa II is now king of northern Palestine, a leading figure in the Jewish establishment. His sister, Bernice, who's mentioned here, was the widow of her own uncle. She was married to her own uncle and was suspected of being in an incestuous relationship with Agrippa II. Boy, you think your family's got problems. What a horrible bunch. Power, corruption, and all of that. What a bunch of malcontents and villains. And these are the people who are judging Paul. Imagine if you were on trial for something, on trial for, for your faith, and you had this man as the judge. If only Paul had some powerful allies. If only Agrippa II wasn't the judge. If only 
his enemies weren't so powerful and cynical and hardened. But I'd like you to notice something very, very interesting. And it does need us to know one Greek word. That word pomp that I mentioned in verse 23, it comes from the Greek word phantasia. Phantasm, phantom, fantasy. That's interesting, isn't it? This word pomp, that they, they all come in. God is reminding us that it's all an illusion. It's all a fantasy. I mean, my uh, youngest, youngest used to play, um, very, well, he does still play, but he used to play various video games, cartoon games, Mario Galaxy and all these kind of things. And there's always a villain to defeat. And one of them was King Boo. Does anyone know who King Boo is? He's like this kind of big white floaty balloon. He looks like a ghost. And of course, whenever the big boss who looks so scary is defeated, what happens? Poof. At the end, he disappears in a puff of smoke. And this is what the writer of Luke is, is telling us in the book of Acts. Yes, these people are horrible. Yes, they're powerful. Yes, they're corrupt. But all this pomp, it's a fantasy. All human power. Paul reminds us then that Paul's enemies, Paul's enemies really only have the authority over Paul that God allows them. Isn't that what the Lord said? At his own trial, you would have no authority over me. Were it not given to you by my Father in heaven? Perhaps we need this reminder as believers if only people weren't so hard-hearted if only the atheists weren't so much in control of the media if only our communities weren't so focused on money and riches if only we had more powerful allies if only we had more resources as a people of God if only no we need to remember ultimately that power is an illusion it's in the hands of the Lord. It's when we are weak, often, that the Lord can use us the most. How often have perhaps we struggled, been feeling very weak, and we discover that perhaps weeks or days or, or, or years later, our weakness and our struggle was actually a means that God used to encourage or bless others. Watching us, we had no idea. Maybe you've seen your brothers and sisters feeling weak and wretched and yet you've drawn encouragement for them from their Christian walk. All sorts of areas. So be brave. Be brave. Power, pomp is fantasy. Secondly, we need to remember that Christ is first. Christ is first, so keep trusting him. Chapter 26 and verse 2. Paul says this incredible thing here, I think myself happy, um, other versions blessed or fortunate. I mean, Paul, he's not saying I'm lucky to be here, but he's almost kind of drawing on those ideas. I'm glad, says Paul, to be on trial in front of you, Agrippa. I don't think Paul is being ironic here. I think he's, he's speaking out of a position of faith. Now, this is actually the third time that Paul gives his testimony in the book of Acts. 
And it's quite a lot of words, isn't it? It's a chapter and a half. And yet Luke has done this before. You can read about it in earlier chapters. Paul gives his testimony again in detail and again in detail and this third time in detail. Why? Why so much of this book devoted to Paul's testimony? It's no coincidence. I mean, if I say something three times, I expect somebody to remember what I say. Um, You have to ask my, my children if that's true or not, but... Paul says it three times. And, and, and I think the stress, we need, to, we need to really take seriously those first few words of, of verse 2, 26 verse 2. I am happy to be here. I'm fortunate to be here. It's good that I'm here. Why? Well, I think Luke, well, Paul, and Luke through Paul, is pointing us to, to Christ in Paul's testimony. We'll see that in all sorts of ways. So, for instance, verses 6 and 7, Jesus is the fulfilment of all that the Old Testament promised. Jesus is the fulfilment. So Paul begins by talking about his life as a Pharisee. And he was mentioning, you mentioned there, the hope of Israel. They were waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. And Paul reminds everyone there that the Pharisees believed in a resurrection from the dead. And he says, why on earth are they angry with me for preaching what they themselves believe? He's kind of, he's being a little bit sort of cheeky, I think, here. He's saying, look, I'm on trial for preaching what the Pharisees believe. I mean, he then goes on to mention the Lord Jesus Christ. But he said, why is that? Why are they doing this? And Jesus has fulfilled everything that the Pharisees were hoping for, for longing for. And and that's why Paul says this. He's saying, look, the time has come. Why is everyone so cross? This is what they've been waiting for. Jesus fulfills everything that God planned in the past. So, what's the application? Well, surely it's this, that if, if the Lord has been able to work all of human history and all of Israel's history into the, the, the birth and the life and the, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and fulfil all the promises that he made in the Old Testament, surely, thinks Paul, he can handle my tiny little life here in this courtroom before this tiny little king. Of a, few, a year or two back, our next-door neighbour was doing some building work in his back garden. And there's a little gap between our house, probably about well, six, six, seven feet, and our neighbour needed a lot of bricks, like concrete blocks. He was building a, a man cave in the back of the garden. It only took him uh, about eight years. <laughs> For seven years, there was just a concrete foundation, and then I think eventually his wife persuaded him that he needed to do it. But there was this little gap, and the lorry turns up, with these pallets of concrete blocks. And I'm looking at my gap between my house and and his, and I'm looking at these blocks, and I'm thinking... Well, I was watching through the curtains, nervously, because here's this guy with these levers navigating this this lifting thing. The crane comes and moves it over. I'm thinking, well, I hope... I really hope this doesn't... He doesn't drop it or smash into the corner of my house. A bit worried. I was watching them all, you know... Swaying a little bit. 
I don't want to ham it up. It wasn't that scary, but but in the end, it was very boring because they were all just delivered in a really neat. And then I realised, oh, he's done that hundreds of times. I didn't need to worry. I didn't need to worry. Why is it that we often only say that after the event has passed? When the bricks are down, oh, I don't need to worry now. No, no, I didn't need to worry before. And Paul is saying here, the Lord fulfills everything that God has promised. So Paul has the confidence that Jesus, the fulfiller of all prophecies, will keep him. We don't need to worry. So there's no if only, is there? What's going to happen next week when you do your exams, young people? If only. There's no if only. Work hard, trust Jesus, and leave the results with him. And you can apply that to any other situation as well. Jesus is the fulfilment. Still in this second heading about Jesus being first, Christ being first. Because Jesus gives forgiveness. Now Paul reminds everyone in verses 17 and 18 of... um, his ministry now but of course in his testimony there is his violent past I was a self-righteous angry persecutor of Christians but now the Lord Jesus has forgiven me and transformed me and those whom he forgives and transforms he sends out to serve him Paul would say, look, I'm an example of what this risen Christ can do. He forgave me, he saved me, and he changed me. And Luke is writing this again to to encourage the believers who are reading it, to encourage the church that what he did for Paul, he could do for Agrippa or Festus or one of the Caesars. Or your neighbour. Or mine. If only people weren't so hard-hearted. No. God only saves bad people. That includes you and I. Nobody is closer to the kingdom than someone else. Until we're alive, we're dead. Only Christ can raise someone to new life. Now, of course, someone might be interested, they might be listening, they might be engaging with you in conversation, or they might not. But they're both dead until the Spirit makes them alive. If only. No, there's no if only. So think. Maybe there are people that you think are beyond salvation. No, Paul is giving us this example here. Christ, he's the fulfilment. He can handle our lives. He brings forgiveness even to people like Paul and your family member or your friend who at the moment just doesn't want to know. So keep praying. And of course, Jesus demands faith. That's why I said Christ is first. Keep trusting him. So you see in verses 15 and 16, Paul reminds us of of, of what happened when he saw the light and he fell to the ground and he heard this voice and he said, Who are you, Lord? Now, of course, that could be, who are you, sir? You know, a term of respect to anyone, sort of a dignitary. But 
Clearly, in Paul's testimony, he's talking to God. Who are you, Lord? And yet he, he knows that, you know, as a strict Jew, you know, he's been fighting against this, this Jesus, who these Christians have said is God's son. And yet here he is saying, who are you, Lord? He'd had this heavenly vision, this heavenly voice. And Paul now knows Jesus is Lord. And Jesus calls us to trust him. He calls Paul to trust him. And notice verse 17 and 18. There are no hidden charges with Christ. There are no, you know, terms and conditions. You know, if you, when you sort of uh, you see all the adverts and at the bottom, what does it say for most adverts? Terms and conditions apply. You know, 37.5% APR or, you know, some whatever it is, there's a catch, isn't there? Your house may be at risk if you do not keep up with your repayments. Terms and conditions. Hidden charges. Jesus says, Paul, look, I'm going to rescue you from the Jewish nation. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And of course, this is a summary. Elsewhere, the Lord promised Paul. He said, I don't know what faces me, only this, that I know in every place that I go, there is tribulation, there's persecution. But I'm still going to go. Why? Because Jesus commands me to believe in him and trust him. He knew what he was signing up for. And Jesus calls us to the same faith. The circumstances will be different for all of us. The struggles will be different. But it's that same genuine faith. Now, maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're still wrestling with the claims of Christ. Maybe you, you just come tonight and you think, well, I, I'm, I need to know something about God. Can I encourage you to count the cost? Following Christ is not just about getting everything you want and being safe and forgiven. It's not like a, an insurance policy that when you, when you die, you go to be with heaven and everything's great. And on this life, he's going to carry you through, the, through life. No. To follow Christ may involve cost. He says, I want you to take up your cross and follow me. It may not be easy. Essentially, Jesus says, look, you need to die to become a Christian. In other words, all the control, all the, if you like, the, the management of your life, you need to, to surrender it into the hands of Christ and trust him to do what is best for you. Now, 99 times out of 100, actually, you're aware that what Christ is doing is best. But there are times when he might lead you into places that you think, I just don't understand. What if, or if only? No. That's when the Lord calls us to trust him still. Count the cost. But it's worth it. It's worth it. So Jesus fulfills all these prophecies. He's in control. Jesus changes impossible people. He raises the dead. He raised Paul to life. And he can do the same for you and I. He calls you and I to live by faith in him. Just as Paul had to. That's the call. What will happen to you tomorrow? James tells you what will happen. You don't know. That's why he says, don't say, you know, next year we'll, we'll go to this city and do this and do that. He says, no. 
If the Lord wills, I will live tomorrow. And then, by God's grace, I, I hope to do this and that and so on. But above all, remember, Christ is first. Keep trusting him. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. So no moaning, no pining, no more what-ifs or if-onlys. We trust him and we follow him by faith. So thirdly, we've seen that power is fantasy and that Christ must come first. Thirdly, delay is folly. Delay is folly. And I think we could put as an application of that Stop pretending. What do I mean? Well, if you look at what um, the, the great and the good say at the end of the chapter 26, the gripper says this, and, and it is translated differently in different English versions. So here's, here's the New King James Version. It says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. That sounds quite positive, doesn't it? You almost. Um, other versions have, do you really think that in such a short space of time you could persuade me to become a Christian. That doesn't sound so positive, does it? And it is, it, it is a kind of slightly ambiguous section. You know, how is it translated? But can you almost hear the gasps in the courtroom when Paul says this, verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. What? Hang on a minute. Who's on trial here? Who's on trial? And yet here's Paul in the dock, or at least being examined by all the powerful. And Paul, with the confidence that being a follower of Jesus has given him, literally turns the tables. And now Paul, as it were, is saying to Agrippa, who is in the dock, so to speak, do you believe the prophets? See how clever Paul is. He asks Agrippa a question that actually he dare not say no to. That's interesting. Because remember, we're, we're in Jerusalem, we're in uh, the, the Jewish nation, and power resides amongst all sorts of groups in Jewish society. Agrippa can't say, don't be daft. He has to say yes. Paul, he's come at it so thoughtfully. And I think this is just a little aside here. Just because God's in control, that does not mean that anything we do is great as far as evangelism or witnessing goes. You can't just be silly and expect God to bless our silliness or to say things in aggressive or, or unpleasant ways and think, well, you know, they need to hear it and God will sort out. Well, no, no, we need to... We need to work hard at being winsome and, and, and wise and understand the people that we're engaging with and think, well, and that involves listening and, and, and sort of trying to feel and gauge. And that may mean that sometimes you think, I can't say something now, but the next time there's an opportunity. Who knows? Do you see that? Anyway, Agrippa was one of the Jewish hierarchy. So whatever he believed in private, he had to publicly affirm the Old Testament. But he is a consummate politician. Do you see how he wriggles? You know, do you really think, or you almost persuade me? And notice, actually, he doesn't answer Paul's question at all, does he? Paul asked him a question, do you believe? And he says, hmm, you almost persuade... Do you know, that sounds so, so contemporary, doesn't it? 
you know, you listen to the people on the radio, answer this question. Well, that's very interesting. Let me first say, blah, blah, blah. But you see, really what Agrippa is doing is he's choosing unbelief. He's choosing to put off Christ. What folly. And remember, what happened to his father? The judgment of God fell on his father. His father who'd executed James and then arrested Peter and then went off into this sort of celebration and, and, and you know, everyone praised him as a god. What happened? God struck him down. Within the week he was dead. That was what happened to your father, Agrippa number two. Why are you delaying? And the answer is, well, because everyone, everyone wants to push Christ away. Naturally. People are essentially foolish until Jesus opens their eyes. Maybe you've grown up in church and you think, well, it's all okay. I'll think about it sometime. I'll think about it when I'm older. Delay is folly. Today, if you're not a believer, go home and, and be serious with God. Do business with God. Be honest with God. Pour out your heart to him. Tell him all the things that perhaps are a hindrance to you become turning to Christ. He's, he knows them all. But don't put it off. And don't just outwardly conform to a set of religious patterns like Agrippa did for the sake of keeping appearances. Don't just think, well, I'll, you know, I'll come and I'll be conform. And, and, but see, no, that's folly. The Lord sees through all that. But he's given you today. Today. People put their faith in foolish things, don't they? I, I sell a number of things on eBay from time to time. We're, we're trying to have a bit of a purge and clear out and you know, get a bit of pocket money in, in the process. eBay. Do you know, why do I think that a tiny little bit of plastic wrapped around a box that on this plastic says fragile will protect what's inside the box? In fact, I've had a number of postman friends say to me, do you know, I know a number of postmen who see fragile signs and, and kind of... It's a bit like Paul, isn't it? You know, I would not know what it was to covet until the Lord told me, do not covet. Like I said, keep off the grass. I might want to go on the grass. Fragile, do not bend. Why do I trust in little... That's the foolish thing to trust in, isn't it? But of course there are lots of parcels sent every year. That's a trivial thing. But more seriously, what are you trusting in? If you're not a believer, what are you trusting in? To guard the most precious thing that you own. Your everlasting life, your everlasting soul. Are you trusting in your kindness, your goodness? Are you trusting in your, your parents, your family? Are you trusting in your church? When Christ says, repent, trust in me alone, he means it. Delay is folly. Stop pretending. And of course, perhaps as believers, we can also put off what we know the Lord is calling us to do in all sorts of areas. We need to stop. So just to wrap things up, God is faithful. 
So let's have a look and see how we make sense of these verses at the end now. Verses 31 and 32. This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. That's the verdict. Not guilty. In the eyes of Rome, in the eyes of the the legal powers, not guilty. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And at first it seems rather disappointing. Three times Paul's given his testimony and you thought, surely somebody will listen and let him go. But now they've listened, they've said he's not guilty, but he's still going to go to Caesar. But wait. God is being faithful in at least two ways. And we'll just briefly look at these in this last concluding section. First of all, vindication. What do I mean by that? God is going to show the world that Christ and Christ's people are a force for good. One of the reasons that the book of Acts was written was to prove to the Roman world that Christianity is good, that Jesus is both God and good for us. It's lawful, respectful. It's not seeking to destroy civilization, even though it turns people's lives upside down. So from the lips of the Roman authorities, in black and white, Luke can write, this man has done nothing wrong. Paul the Apostle is innocent. God will vindicate his people at exactly the time he chooses. What if people say nasty things about you? Untrue things. Hurtful things, things that damage your reputation, or worse, things that damage the reputation of Jesus Christ. What if people slander us? It's so easy, isn't it, to sort of fret and worry, or maybe become angry and defensive. We do, yes, all we can to speak the truth, but no matter what happens, be at peace. God will vindicate his servants. At the right time. In a moment, Paul is going to sail to Rome. And that's the second thing that God is doing here. Not only vindication, but direction. How many times has something not been what we've wanted and the Lord has led us somewhere better? Here is exactly this situation. 27 verse 1. They're going to sail to Italy. We know the story. Paul preaches the gospel to Caesar. The king of the known world hears about Paul's testimony. That's not written, but I imagine they probably had testimony number four. In, in That would have been Acts chapter 29, wouldn't it, I guess, if it was written. But then, what do we read about in Philippians? At the end of the book of Philippians... Paul sends this lovely little greeting and he says this to the, to the church at Philippi those from Caesar's household send their greetings I mean I'm, I'm not really I'm too old to say this but lol I mean Paul is enjoying Caesar's hospitality in jail but people are being saved God has a sense of humour in the midst of all his sovereign control. God is 
faithful believers in the midst of Caesar's household. That's why, that, that's the answer to chapter 26, verse 32. If only. No. If Paul had been set free, we might not have had that verse in Philippians. But thankfully, there are no what ifs. God is faithful. I'm going to end with a story, an illustration of a man called Peter Benjamin. You may have heard of him. Peter Benjamin was an ex-soldier, happily married for many, many years. After his wife died, in his trauma and confusion, Peter, this ex-soldier who'd been married for many, many years, asked for and received non-reversible gender reassignment surgery. For several years, he lived and looked like a woman. But this did not bring him any peace. Instead, it led him deeper into depression. Somehow, he found himself attending a Bible-believing church. I mean, how? I'd love to know the answer to that. I think he's given his still testimony elsewhere. And he was saved, gloriously saved, turning from, from his sin, trusting in Christ. He realised, Peter Benjamin realised who he was, Peter Benjamin the man, because he discovered who Christ was. Now that was Good Friday, 2020. Was that during the pandemic? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, if only there wasn't a pandemic. No, God uses everything. Now, how would Peter answer that question? If only my wife hadn't died. If only I didn't have depression. If only I hadn't mutilated my body. But the summary of the story, as it's written out, uh, told by someone else telling Peter's story, was this, that for Peter, and I'm quoting now, despite his depression, anxiety, and irreversible harm, his story is one of hope. Out of his despair, he's found his identity through faith in Jesus. And he's found his friendship, sorry, he's found his faith in Jesus Christ and the friendship he found in a local Christian community. We see the same hope here in a totally different story. Paul arrested and God uses him. Peter, tragic story, transformed. What's yours? What's mine? Well, we can only look back at what's been and say that he's been faithful to today. And so what will happen tomorrow? But I know I have hope in him. So let's 